Proverbs 5. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen closely to my understanding so that you may maintain discretion and your lips safeguard knowledge. Though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she's as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps head straight for Sheol. She doesn't consider the path of life. She doesn't know that her ways are unstable. So now, sons, listen to me and don't turn away from the words from my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Otherwise, you'll give up your vitality to others and your years to someone cruel. Strangers will drain your resources and your hard-earned pay will end up in a foreigner's house. At the end of your life, you will lament when your physical body has been consumed and you'll say, how I hated discipline and how my heart despised correction. I didn't obey my teachers or listen closely to my instructors. I'm on the verge of complete ruin before the entire community. Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams in the public squares, they should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. A loving deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Why, my son, would you lose yourself with a forbidden woman or embrace a wayward woman? For a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes, and he considers all his paths a wicked. He considers all his paths a wicked man's iniquities will trap him. He will become tangled in the ropes of his own sin. He will die because there's no discipline, and be lost because of his great stupidity. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you for your words. Thank you for your guidance for us. Thank you that you call out and offer us wisdom. And we are here today responding to you, saying, teach us, lead us. And I pray now that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to lay ourselves down for you, to take on your wisdom, not just as information, but as deep heart change. Thank you, God, that we can come to you for that. We look to you for that now. Please help us to handle well this complicated topic of sex. We need you, God. Thank you that, uh, that we can ask you for help in this way. Amen. Well, uh, yesterday I, uh, I was at the hairdressers and uh, got into a conversation with my hairdresser. I go to the same hairdresser, but hadn't had this particular barber before. And so we had met, and we were having a lovely conversation, and um, through the conversation, we got talking about life, and therefore, he asked me about my work, and he found out this is what I do for a job, and then his next question was really interesting. He said, so you do the, you do the preaching? I said, yeah. And he said, so what's tomorrow's topic? <laughs> And I said, well, it's interesting. You really want to know? And he sort of looked at me strange and said, yeah. And I said, well, we're talking about sex. And then he sort of stopped and went, oh. He had a smirk on his face. And then he said, what? I said, actually, we're talking about wise sex. You ever heard anyone talk about wise sex before? (laughs) And he went, no. (laughs) And then then he was sort of like interested. And and then uh, he said, hold on a second. I've got to tell everyone about this. (laughs) <laughs> and so he called out to all the other staff There was other staff in the barbers And he called out to them and he said Hey guys, 
You've got to come here. This guy's a priest, right? And he calls the barbers around to the chair I'm sitting in with the cloak that I've got on. And then I'm, saying, I'm laughing and saying, mate, don't do this. Please don't do this. And he goes, guys, this guy's a priest. This guy's a priest. Guess what he's talking on tomorrow? <laughs> and and uh, I said, oh, no, no, no. And, and the guy goes, he's talking about sex. And then he says, you want to talk about it now? <laughs> and they all did. They all did. They, and did, it was crazy. It was, it was crazy. I, for a moment, I thought I was in an Ice Cube movie or that scene out of Coming to America, right? This is a barber shop. <laughs> and then I thought, the kids in the chair are like 10 years old and this is the, this, the hairdressers were leaving their station to come and have a conversation about sex with minors like a metre away from us. <laughs> And I thought, isn't that, isn't that really interesting? Isn't it really interesting that uh, as far from a worldview of sex that the church is or the Bible is from the world that we live in, there's still a fascination and interest about discussion about sex. People want to, know, people want to talk about it. People want to ask about it. And I think that partly is because we're not all, we need wisdom on this particular area. Something so private, so personal, so not often discussed, we actually need to discuss. We need to talk about it. And I'm saying that from the barbershop, but also to us here today as a church family, we need to talk about this. That's what we need to do. We need to have discussions about important topics like this. So I'm not sure at what level that you come in, if it's fascination or interest, or whether it's through personal experience, where you say, well, I've always wondered about this, and I... I feel this. Within my own relationships, I've experienced this and, and it's broken and I, and I need to find a way to move through that, to work through that. We have to find ways of talking about this. And I will be honest from the very beginning. Hopefully I'm honest the whole way through. <laughs> Hopefully I'm always honest. But the reason I'm saying this is because I don't know if I have been. I've preached on Proverbs 5 a number of times before. And I preached on it on the context of friendship. And you can do that. It's not a complete misrepresentation of the text, but it's not really being honest to the text and what's going on. The reason why it's here in Proverbs 5, where the reason why it's within the context of passing on wisdom, godly wisdom, is because it's important to us. We can't dodge around it, is what I'm trying to say. So, so today I will be honest. I'm going to talk about sex in the way that the Bible talks about sex. And so I want to say that to you from the outset. I hope that you might hear it that way. I feel like I've been very prayerful in the lead up to this message because I'm not 100% sure where the line is on what you should say in a public setting like this and what you shouldn't say. And so my heart is that, um, that we talk about the things that are important in a way that is actually good for us to talk about them. And where the conversation goes from there, I look forward to seeing what happens next. So I want to talk about um, Proverbs 5, the context for sex, the gift of sex, and then gospel-centred sex. Okay? So let's do that. Proverbs 5, the context for sex. It gives it to us. The first half of Proverbs 5, verses 1 to 14, uh, have a specific focus, and then the second half has another specific focus. 
Proverbs 5 is in the longer introduction of the book of Proverbs that we've talked about frequently here in this series during Proverbs. And so the setting is still fresh in our minds. It's a parent sitting down with his child or with young men talking about this is godly wisdom for a good life. This is skill for living. You need to know these things. And at this point in the conversation, the, the topic is sex. Verse 1 says, verse, my son, we see here again, he's having another... He's, he's, instigating another conversation instead of just talking this time it's it's the talk right as much as the father's telling the child what to do he also offers a lot of warnings who and what to avoid when it comes to sex wisdom doesn't tell us everything that you're allowed to do and set boundaries for you and say if you do this you're good if you do that you're bad it's instead it's interested in your life it's interested in the depth of life that you experience and so it's advice here there's guidelines for if you really want to experience good life, then sex is, your, your, your response and, and approach to sex is going to have a significant, a significant impact on that. This is what's good for you. The sort of life that might result from certain decisions you make. Verse 3 tells us this, the setting of the first half of Proverbs 5 is about the forbidden woman, forbidden sex, the place where sex is actually not good for us. Verse 8 says, keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. The meaning is, as highlighted in the second half of the chapter, that the father's context of a marriage relationship. So to engage with the forbidden woman is to effectively enter into sexual relations with anyone that was not his wife, right? You can see it. The warnings are stark. The dad isn't mucking around. Wisdom doesn't joke about things that are important. Straight to the point, stark, heavy warnings. To engage in sexual activity with anyone who's not your marriage partner is to be willingly led astray, away from what is good, the path of life, and to veer off into thoughtlessness, a lack of consideration about the consequences of our actions. Her feet go down to death. She doesn't consider the way of life. It seems like it will be all good, sweet and enjoyable. Do you see what happens? The way that, the way that sex actually sort of comes to us often or, or the topic comes to us. The woman, the woman has uh, speech dripping with, with honey. With, her words are coated with oil, like things that are supposed to be pleasurable to make things better. And yet, immediately, the result of partaking in that is pain, confusion, frustration. This is the wisdom that's set before us. Now, I just want to make clear that when I'm talking about sex here and marriage in particular, the marriage, what I'm saying is sex belongs in the context of marriage. I'm going to outlay that a little bit clearer. But for me, the definition of marriage here and for us as a church is, is union between one man and one woman. Okay? So I just want to shorthand that so I don't have to say that again and again and again. And you might be thinking, why am I telling you this? Like, this is sort of like the, the basics like, sure, don't have sex outside of marriage. That makes complete sense. You, know, you should keep it confined to, in its rightful place. But you, the reason why I think we need to talk about this is you aren't going to get that message anywhere else. You're just not. Nowhere that you look around our world that talks about sex is going to say that. Nancy Piercy, uh, who wrote a book uh, called Love Thy Body, she talks about her penny drop moment when she spoke at a church on, regarding sexuality and, and personal identity and that sort of stuff. And she said there was a group of 20-somethings around her, like a, a large group, she said about 20 of them. 
And they were just really loved what she was saying. It brought sort of new understanding and wisdom to their eyes. And it was all about, you know, sex and identity, all that sort of stuff. And then she said, in the enthusiasm of the moment, some of the young men then said to her, well, now, now all you have to do is talk to us about how to get on a date, right? And she said the penny drop moment for her was that she was speaking to young people who were familiar with sex, but not familiar with dating. And so what's happened is she's, she's trying to point out that there's a, there's a hookup culture which pervades our media, which pervades the way that we talk about sex in our culture, is that we've leapfrogged relationships to physical activity of sex. And so therefore, when you see things in movies and on TV, we're not talking about, you're not hearing messages about how to have good sex in the best possible way. You're hearing about how to be fulfilled in the moment by gratifying desires of your flesh. Now, being gratified, you're going to hear this loud and clear. It's not a bad thing. It's a really good thing. But you're just not going to get the messages of the best way to do that anywhere else. She goes on in her book and she says that she's got countless sort of interviews with college students and they all say the same kind of thing about the experience of what living a life like that feels like. One person said to her, uh, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body and make yourself emotionally invulnerable. Right? This is our culture's attitude to sex. It's a physical moment. I saw an introduction to uh, a promo for a podcast of a comedian recently, a female comedian, a very, very famous lady. And uh, in the snapshot of the, of the promo to her podcast, there was an interaction with a man who the context of the conversation was he'd only ever been with one woman, his wife, right? And she was gobsmacked. She was so floored by the idea that that could possibly be to happen. The only category that she had for it was that that must be your fetish. This, this, she called it a kink. This is what you're into? Just, a, just being with one person? That's so ridiculous to the thought life of people. I remember uh, when I got engaged. When, when Amy and I got engaged, uh, uh, I, 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 I did it. I planned out a nice night. A, a, a nice time and one of the things that I included in the evening was we went to see our favourite um, singer her name was Claire Bowditch you might have heard of her or not but uh, I actually and she's a, she's a brilliant songwriter brilliant performer brilliant artist and I was lucky enough to have been able to make contact with her manager and then her in the lead up to uh, that evening um, I said, is there any chance, I don't want to make a big fuss about it, any chance you could just dedicate a song to my, my, my at that time, my girlfriend, right? And, uh, and I told them why and all of that. And so we go to the concert. Um, actually, we, the first, she played two nights in a row and we went, to the, we went to the Saturday night and she was pregnant and she said, she just had pregnant brain, she completely forgot about the whole thing about the request. She really wanted to do it. So she called me on the phone and said, let me repay you. I need to make this up to you. Come be my special guest. Come onto, onto the list. Anyway, so the second night we went to the concert after we were already engaged. <laughs> and then, uh, and then she, there comes the moment in the set that she's playing where she pauses and she stops and she focuses in on Amy and me. And then she said, I had this special moment. A young man asked me to dedicate a song to his you know, girlfriend. Da, 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 da. And she made this big fuss about it. And then uh, she was... You know, she, it was this really lovely moment and everyone was ooing and ahhing and all of that. And then she starts playing the song that she dedicated to us and, uh, and then she stops and she says, hang on a second, 
How old are you? And Amy says, yells out from the crowd, 21. And there was this audible gasp from the whole room, from the whole, from the whole venue, this audible gasp of, <gasps> and, and it was this sort of like feeling of like this corporate sense. There's no way that you're getting married at 21. You are limiting yourself. <laughs> How could you possibly commit to one person at such a young age? There is so much for you to experience outside of what they could possibly offer you. You see, the way that our culture views sex and messages about it is that it's, it, this, is a, this is a, you need to explore it. You need to, you need, there's really two basic ways that we understand sex. Firstly, that it's biological. It's a biological act and therefore it has no meaning or morality attached to it. There's an Australian philosopher who works in, at, a, at a college in America, a big college, Princeton, uh, Peter Singer, famous guy got a lot of controversial views about sex and one of them is that there is no moral attachment to sex and the way he describes it is that it's the same as driving a car. You have to be considerate of people out there on the road, you have to be, make sure it's not just about you, there needs to be consent, da 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 da, da right? And there's, there's this scientific biological approach to sex and so that, that influences the messages that we hear. There's no morality attached to it, this, this doesn't really mean anything beyond just the physical moment. And then that gives way to just really the experience of self-expression. This is about you being gratified and fulfilled. This is something that it doesn't matter aside from what you can get to feel good. Right? Self-expressive or just nothing. Both of these views are a much lower view of sex than the biblical view. Have a look at verse 9 to 11. See what happens. Verse 9 to 11 here. Otherwise you'll give up your vitality to others and your years to someone cruel. Strangers will drain your resources and your hard-earned pay will end up in a foreigner's house. At the end of your life, you will lament when your physical body has been consumed. The implications of misplaced sex over the course of someone's life, the impact is emotional, it's practical, it's mental, it's physical. All of these things. It's not just something that you can... You can detach from yourself. The Bible has a much more powerful, much more, a much higher view of sex than, than what our culture does. All this to say that the Bible views sex with such great power that it isn't just a mechanical process that enables procreation or even fulfilling a desire, but it has a unique ability to affect your heart. So biblically, this is such a significant factor that sex belongs in the context of a covenant, a committed relationship that involves two people giving themselves to one another. The term God uses is one flesh. Tim Keller puts it like this, the Bible is saying, don't unite with someone physically unless you're also willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, psychologically and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way. Sex, therefore, is like the renewing of that covenant again and again and again. Right? Now, what does all this mean? Um, oh, it means at least, it means that lots of things, but it means at least these three things. Firstly, it means that if you're someone who has lived through unwise expressions of sex, the forgiveness of God through Jesus is for your sexual sin too. If you resonate with the reality that sex has a unique ability to affect your heart, I want to encourage you that those parts of your life are not 
excluded from God's saving grace, right? But secondly, it means that if sex is this multifaceted, multi-sort of level way of affecting you and sort of this unique power to affect our heart, well then, that gives us insight into how it actually works within relationships that you might be part of. Uh, emotionally, physically, practically, mentally, it's not just a mechanical action, then, then don't approach it that way. You know what that means? That means thinking ahead. That means building on great converse, oh, good conversation. It means asking good questions of people. It means there's a bit of a warm-up process to good sex. It's not just an instant, a moment where it happens. It, it, it's complicated and it impacts us in, in deep, multifaceted ways. Uh, understand that the way you speak and connect personally and ask good questions and laugh together will play a part in the way that you experience sex. You know, um, Amy and I, I'm not going to give you any details here, but <laughs> Amy and I, we've both worked at home, worked from home for the last nine years, right? And so some couples hear that and go, oh, we'd kill to have that much time with my spouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me tell you, it's, it's, it's nice and convenient. And yet at the same time, what we found is that when we work from an office outside of our home and then come back together at the evening, we, we appreciate each other so much more. We enjoy conversation together so much more. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, there's no, there's no real impetus to go and ask good questions when you're just sitting in the room next to each other tapping away on a keyboard. This is why, I'm, this is why we really need this building project to happen so we can get an office, okay? <laughs> so I need you to help me improve my sex life. <laughs> Thirdly, okay, this, all, all this stuff about where the context of sex, uh, it actually means... Uh, at least one other thing in regard to singleness. That if we're going to approach this from a personal angle only, then we don't need to care about anyone else, okay? But if you're seeking to help each other grow into the likeness of Christ, then we have a responsibility to each other, in particular single people. If the context for sex is covenantal marriage between a man and woman, if we make an idol out of family and we say like the zenith of Christianity and faith is family with kids and happy marriage and yada, 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 all of that, well, then uh, we actually limit the ability that we have to actually be a community of people that display the gospel amongst people who are different to us. So what I'm saying is that we single people who want to live out this biblical sexual ethic actually need a community of people around them who want that same thing too. And so therefore, I'm speaking particularly to families you actually need to be invitational to people who aren't just families at the same stage of life as you, to single people, people who can actually come in and, be, and benefit from the thing that you have so that you can also benefit from them and from the way that God is at work in their life too. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Second, let's move on now. The second half of Proverbs 5, the gift of sex. That was just the first point, by the way. Here's the second point. The gift of sex. Uh, when you move to the second half of this chapter, there's an obvious shift as the father changes his focus from the forbidden woman to the young man's wife. We see that there's an actual context here of marriage for the young man that is already set in place, whether he's betrothed or committed to someone, you know, for whatever arrangement they had at that point in time. Either way, the context is clear there is a wife intended for this young man. 
And this is when the passage gets a bit steamier, okay? We need to embrace that, by the way. We need to embrace this reality that God isn't a prude. The Bible's not shy about sex. God created us with more than reproductive and anatomical pieces. We've been created to enjoy all these good works and all of his character. He created us that way. And when he created us that way, he said, this is very good. Very good. Right? Proverbs 5 elaborates on that sense of what very good might mean. It's an understatement. (laughs) In the second half of the chapter, there's a metaphor employed of water. Look at verse 15. And 16 and 18, drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. In other words, indulge in sex together in the context of marriage. Indulge in sex. Should your springs follow in the streets, streams of water in public squares, let your fountain be blessed. You see the water theme that's there? It's very clear, very obvious. It's supposed to conjure up ideas of quenching the young couple's sexual thirst. It's erotic. It's supposed to be erotic. Right? And for your information, if you look at the way that the passage is written and the way that this section in particular is written, I've told you that the context is the idea of a, a fatherly figure passing on wisdom to a younger generation. This section is a prayer. The dad is praying for his kid. Right? May your fountain be blessed. That's the father's prayer for the kid. The most erotic prayer I've ever heard. Right, But it actually kicks up a notch. It gets a little more intense when the speaker transitions out of the metaphoric pictures and into real life. Verse 19, a loving deer, a graceful doe, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated by her love. A more literal translation would read like this. And this is from uh, uh, Bruce Walker, who I think he's the best scholar on... on, um, Uh, the wisdom literature that that there is. And this is how he translates this passage. May she be a love-making doe, a graceful mountain goat. May her breasts drench you at all times. And with her caresses, may you always become intoxicated. I I, I almost feel inappropriate to read the Bible with you here together on a Sunday morning, right? But we need to say this so clearly that God doesn't want a half-hearted sex life for you, He wants you to be entirely fulfilled. Biblical wisdom is about more than avoiding sexual sin, right? That's not, that's not biblical wisdom's approach. There is the avoiding of sexual sin, but in another sense, equally and more so, it's about embracing, embracing sex as God intended it. Wisdom says, drink deep from your own well. Let sex be something that passionately ties a husband and wife together. Do you see that? See what I'm saying about trying to be true to the text? It's, it's not hidden. It's there and it's good. It has to be more than just do it. It has to be more than just, okay, you got it? Go have sex, right? You're, you're hot and heavy? Go be obedient. Great. The gospel informs sex in another way. I want to talk about now gospel-centred sex. Paul picks up this theme in 1 Corinthians and he expresses it this way. Do we have the slide there? Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3 to 5, he says, A husband should fulfil his marital responsibility to his wife. 
and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife doesn't have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband doesn't have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another sexually, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of a lack of self-control. There's a biblical command happening here, which is have sex regularly. It's a commandment. Be obedient. Have sex regularly. But to do so knowing that the one flesh covenant of marriage means in this act, your body belongs to the other. Practically speaking, the focus of each individual isn't to get pleasure, but rather to give pleasure. Do you see that? This is where uh, all the advice in Proverbs culminates. Okay? Um, sex has a context with one person in the covenant of marriage and God has given sex as a good gift to enjoy and glorify him. But it does at least two other things. <clears throat> Firstly, it helps categorise lust. Okay? It, helps us, it gives us a framework for understanding where the lines are around sexual temptation and giving into sexual temptation. Okay? Let me explain. If you've ever wondered where the line is about looking at another person you're not married to, about masturbation or something else, thinking about it in terms of whether this fits within your role uh, of belonging to your spouse and giving them pleasure can actually be helpful. Do you see how that works? That in that moment where you're wondering, is this crossing a line or not crossing a line or reflecting back, did that cross? Well, then if you use this as a guideline, that can be actually a really helpful thing. Was my intention to give my spouse pleasure or was this a one-person focus, a self-focus? It also does something else. and What it does is it makes sex better. Now, one of the most helpful... uh, Did you you hear that? Like, actually focusing on another person's pleasure, your your spouse's pleasure, makes sex better. One of the most helpful resources that I read in the lead-up to this came from uh, Tim Keller's book called uh, The Meaning of Marriage. Meaning of Marriage? Is that it? Yeah. And in that, he has a chapter on sex. And it's helpful because he actually says things that are very practical, right? And in light of this 1 Corinthians 7 passage, he talks about his own experience. And this is what he says. When I was doing research for this chapter, I found some old talks that Kathy and I did together. I'd forgotten some of the struggles we had in our early days and some of the notes reminded me that in those years we started to dread having sex. Kathy, in those remarks, says that if she didn't experience an orgasm during lovemaking, we both felt like failures. If I asked her, how was that? And she said, it just hurt. I felt devastated. And she did too. We had a great deal of trouble until we started to see something. As Kathy said in her notes, we came to realise that orgasm is great especially climaxing together. But the awe, the wonder, the safety and the joy of just being one is stirring and stunning even without that. And when we stopped trying to perform and just started trying to simply love one another in sex, things started to move ahead. We stopped worrying about our performance. We stopped worrying about what we were getting and started to say, well, what can we do just to give something to the other? You see, see how that makes, it makes sex better? Putting the other ahead of yourself. It's a very, it's 
a very sort of gospel way of looking at it. The thing is, though, you could do that and still miss out. Like, you really could. You could commit to your partner's enjoyment based out of you wanting to alleviate feeling guilt or feeling inadequate or feeling like a failure or something. You could commit to their gratification purely so that you actually remove from yourself that sense, right? That's, that's not actually focusing on their gratification. It's focusing on yours. Do you see? All these things have the potential to make sex a chore. In fact, it has the potential to make sex religious. We're doing this because the Bible says that as a command, husbands and wives should be like this, therefore we should practice this, and therefore becomes another sort of rod for our back. The Bible's view of sex is far more... Uh, yeah, the Bible's view of wise sex is far more controversial or explicit than anything I've said today. And what I'm about to say I think is the most controversial thing, and I don't know if I've said anything controversial, I've just been open... Uh, but this, by far, is the most challenging thing, perspective on sex that, that I have. Far more challenging and countercultural. The only way to wise sex is a view of sex that begins with what Proverbs would describe, the fear of the Lord. That's the context here, right? It's the context. It's, all of wisdom fits into that category. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. See, the only way to truly wise sex is to believe in a God that is ultimately more satisfying than sex is. See how I'm saying that's controversial? There is, you, there is not one message out there that will tell you that. that. There is a God who is able to fulfill you in ways that nothing else can. To believe in a God who embodies love and commitment so powerfully that he's revealed himself to us, the way that he's made sense of himself to us, is in a perfect union of a community of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He exists in the context of a loving community, which um, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it's spilled over, intentionally spilled over. That perfect union, that perfect oneness, that perfect submission was intentionally spilled over through the blood of Christ so that we'd be able to include you. Um, union between a man and woman is a powerful display of that but only when it's informed by that (coughs) so here's what I'm saying do you you want to have a, a good sex life do you want to have a wise sex life do you want to have sex that uh is done in light of the fear of the lord have you ever thought about that before then you need to know a love that is greater than yours. A love that is greater than yours for your spouse, a love that is greater than yours from your spouse. Do you want to have a fulfilling sex life, a fulfilling love relationship? Do you want to have a hope that goes beyond a circumstance of singleness? A a love that satisfies beyond whatever marital status, whatever condition of your relationship? one that actually pervades your relationship into these practical, everyday, important, confusing, complicated issues of life, well, then you need to know. You need to know 
that there is a love that is more satisfying than the best sex that you could have. And that by knowing that love, by knowing that what Christ has done has been done for you, will actually enable you to experience a better sex life than you've ever had. This is my prayer for you, that you would know his love in order that you would know good sex, that you would know wise sex, placed in the context that it belongs, fulfilled in the way that God intended it. Let me pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you have grace for us. To, to hear these things and to know these things and to learn these things um, in such a way that you cater for our failures, our misunderstanding, our sin. You cover us completely. Thank you, God. And not only that, but you restore us. May we know the truth of that, especially in this area of sex. That we would know what wisdom looks like in this area. Teach us to fear you, Lord, even in this space. Especially in this space. Thank you for your love that was poured out for us. That is greater than any other form that we've ever could see or imagine. Amen.